listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the book of Acts entitled, The Birth of the Church. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading in chapter eight of the book of Acts. I wanna pick up the story, the narrative once again, verse 29. And uh, beginning there, it says, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage from scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, and so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue in your word that you would continue to teach us and to instruct us. That Lord, unless we have knowledge of your truth, we will be casting about to find things that make sense in life. We thank you that your word makes sensible many of the senseless things that we hear and see in our world today. And we pray that with that knowledge would come wisdom and the ability to make right choices and right decisions, that we might live our lives as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Help us to have that grace, Lord, operative in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are many things today that we take for granted. Um, I remember when one of my children asked me, Dad, were there cowboys and Indians when you were growing up? And I said, son, not only were there cowboys and Indians, but I was there when dirt was created. So, you know, it's, but for many people who are younger, these things are new. I mean, for those of us who lived through the aftermath of World War II, and we lived through the Korean War, and we lived through the Vietnam conflict or conflict war, and many other things, these things all had a shaping and molding impact. And it's easy for us to not, to realize that many people growing up later on These are only words, they're only historical footnotes that they may or may not know something about. But there are a lot of other things that we just assume are essential. I mean, when I talk to my kids and they talk about how expensive life is, and I said, well, it was cheaper when I was younger. We didn't have some of the things that you had. When your mom and I got married, we didn't own a TV. We not only didn't have a cell phone, we never heard of such a thing. And many other things like that in your life that you thought was, was essential. And you look at our lives today with our computers, with things like air conditioning. Um, how did you survive without that? Or jet travel or space travel? How about exotic foods from around the world? Or even things like healthcare. You know, we had a neighbor doctor, and uh, I'd go over and see the doc and say, hey, I'm not feeling good. He'd take me into his office in his house and shoot me up with penicillin and then charge my parents exorbitant prices like $10. And 
you know, they're, even shopping malls and fast foods. <laughs> you, know, you know what fast foods was for me when I was a kid? A Mars bar. That was fast food. That's as far as we went. And we actually thought that sugar was good for us. Things today that we think are absolutely essential did not exist just 50 years ago. Yet one of the most important changes is the fact that nearly everybody, there's almost universal literacy today. The simple ability to read and to write. I mean, 200 years ago, only 12% of people knew how to read and write. Just 50 years ago, 24% of the population could read and write. Today in the world, 86% literacy rates around the world. But in biblical times, the number was more like 1%. Mark Twain noted, he said, what the world is today, good and bad, it owes to Gutenberg. And Gutenberg, of course, is referring to the Gutenberg printing press, which was the first printing press that could in a sense, mass-produced literature. We would not consider it to be fast today. But what it did is it began to reduce the cost of printing and shifted the economy, ever so importantly, from a labor-based economy to a learning-based economy. For the first time in world history, what you knew became more important than what you could do with your hands or you could craft or you could grow in your fields. See, prior to this, the only... Only the elites were the ones who knew how to read, and even fewer of them even knew how to write. So you had people who could read to some level, but they couldn't write. They had never developed the skill of writing out. You had professional scribes. We call them amenuuses today. That's a ridiculous word. But they were people who would write things out for you. You'd dictate what you wanted written, and they would do that. And in fact, in many parts of the world, especially in Asia, that still is how people do things. They go to somebody who is a scribe and they dictate to them what they want written. But there was one notable exception in world history and that was the Jews. See, from antiquity, the Hebrew people recorded the history of their forefathers, especially their encounters with Elohim, the Almighty God. He, to them, was the one true God who created and sustained everything, whether you're looking at matter or man or plants or animals. From the beginning, he was a great God who created but also communicated so that he was a God of words and language, as evidenced from the very third verse of the book of Genesis where it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The very first words audibly spoken was the creative word that created the heavens and the earth, cast it and caused it to come into being. So that when we talk about the God of the Old Testament, he was not only the God of the beginning, but the God who communicated with mankind from the very beginning, intending that men should be both literate and informed and communicative with the world around them. These are the reasons that the Hebrew people, unlike most of other nations, put a heavy premium upon the idea of being able to read and to be able to write. A fact that's emphasized by the first book chronologically that was written in the Old Testament, the oldest book in the Old Testament, which we believe to be actually the book of Job, written sometime around 2000 BC or maybe even earlier. Earlier. 
And there Job moaned in the midst of his suffering. He said, oh, that my words were recorded and that they were written on a scroll, which in fact they were, and we have them today. But it was Moses, a man we are told who was back in chapter seven of Acts, he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, who was commanded by God in Exodus 34 to write these things down, which he, we are told in Deuteronomy 31, he obediently did. It said, Moses finished writing in a book the words from beginning to end. Even Israel's kings were commanded by the Lord in Deuteronomy 17 that every king was to write for himself a scroll, a copy of this law. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, follow him carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Yet we're pretty, it's very likely that most of them did not do that. And to some degree, it explains their behavior. There was an adage I was taught as a young believer when I first started reading the Bible. It went like this. It said, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. And I have found that to be a truism in my life, that I find that the more faithful I am in reading the Bible, the more convicted and convinced and converted I am to the things that it says. Its truths become compelling to me because I read it. And in those times where I began to become so busy I just didn't have enough time to read the Bible, I found that also there became a drifting in my life. Now, it's not surprising to most of us, but I think that most of us have never been on both sides of that fence. We've never really committed to the reading of the words, so we really don't experience personally the profound difference that just reading it can make in one's life. And for Israel, it was not until the Babylonian captivity with the, not only the destruction of the temple and everything that involved what we call the cultic parts of the religious worship. doesn't mean that they were occult or in a cult, but basically sacrifice rituals like that are called the cultic part of a religious system. But the scriptures and the rabbis replaced the temple and the priest as being the primary intermediaries between God and man. There was no temple, there were no sacrifices, but what did they have left when they went into captivity? They had the scrolls of the scriptures written by Moses and the prophets, and so they began to gather around what they had left. And it's interesting sometimes when we look around at what we organize ourselves around in time of crisis, what we usually have left are really the things that are most important. You know, I mean, it's a, you may have a, a, a Renoir hanging on the wall, but if you're hungry, crackers are more important. <laughs> it's just a natural reality that, you know, hardships in life reduce us down to the things that matter the most. Some of us understand that as we get older and we begin to deal with the issues of aging and your health begins to slowly slide, you realize that being healthy is one of the nicest things you can experience in life. One of the most important things, to feel good when you get up in the morning, becomes a joyous celebration day by day. Well, we find that it was from the priests who no longer were offering sacrifices, 
Then arose men like Ezra, who was a priest, but he's referred to often and again as Ezra the scribe. He was a biblical authority. And we find that when it talks in the New Testament about people who were experts in the law. They were basically, the King James called them lawyers, which was, I think, a terribly critical way of describing them. But they were experts in the law because they were the ones who actually copied the texts. And in doing so, they knew better than anybody else what the text actually said. And so we know that he became a biblical authority, but even most importantly, he was the one who actually organized, edited, and put the Old Testament together in the form that we have it today. Men like him were called in Hebrew sophorim. And sophorim literally means counters. And what they were is they were counters of letters and lines and it was an interesting way because in Deuteronomy 12, 32, they took very seriously the command that said, see to that, that you do not add or take away from this law. Don't add anything to it. Don't put in your own footnotes saying, you know, I know the Bible says this, but in my opinion, he said, said don't do that. God is not impressed or interested in your opinion. I know that's a shock for many of us. But he said, I put it down and I want you to copy it exactly as, it was, as I gave it to you. Now, there has arisen, actually arose back in about 1799, to give an exact date, when a German uh, pastor and theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, not to be confused with Friedrich Frankenstein, or Frankenstein to be more accurate, but he basically said the Bible is not a reliable text. Now, Unfortunately, he had, in 1799, there wasn't the, the science of archaeology. There wasn't a science of textual criticism. <coughs> Excuse me. The world that we live in here some 200 years later is so very, very different than the world that he was in. But that's always the problem. We always think that a lack of evidence is proof of no evidence, which is a logical fallacy that people fall into all the time. Today, not only do we have archaeological science that supports unerringly the accuracy of the Bible's record, but also we have thousands of textual manuscripts of both Old and New Testament, and in particular, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was profound. But part of the reason why the Bible didn't get altered and changed and corrupted over and over again in the centuries, as is often purported is because the sophorim had very specific rules that they were required to follow. For example, each word had to be read aloud and had to be read alone. So each word had to be pronounced and said aloud. It had to be taken only from what was considered to be an authentic, genuine copy of the biblical text. That when they'd come to the word God, he would have to take his pen and go over and wash his pen and clean it off before he could write the word God. When he came to the word Yahweh, which is translated often or rendered often in our text as the Lord, he would have to put his pen down and go into the mikvah and wash his body and then come back and he could write the word. Now think about how long this would take. This is why some transmissions of copying of the Old Testament could take up to a year or more. Because when you come to some places where it says, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord our God Almighty, I mean, this guy's, you know, he's going to catch a cold. He's just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But they did it because they were so devoted to the text itself. 
which didn't exist anyplace else. Other places, they did play fast and loose with text and alter and change them. But each letter, thirdly, had to be exactly the right distance from the other letter, and the letters could not touch. Each letter of the words, each letter in every word had to be counted before it could be written to make sure that you weren't adding. Each column of the text could only hold 40 to 80 lines and no more. Each page could only permit a certain number of letters and a certain number of words. And that's why they called them counters or sulfurum because they would be going through and counting the letters, counting the words, counting the lines, counting the pages. Each page would be so rigorously changed, char, uh, checked by this process that they would even find, account what was the beginning, the midpoint, and the ending letter of every page. And any mistake on one page, one mistake on one page, the entire page had to be destroyed. Three mistakes on one page, they destroyed the entire manuscript and they started all over again. Now, I know some of you are saying, those guys were O-C-D. Well, I would agree with you. If they weren't that way when they started, they were that way when they ended. Because, but the whole point was that it tells us that they held this process as being so sacred, so important, that the idea that they just kind of were ripping this out is just false. You see, the fruit of their care became apparent in 1947 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And to the world's amazement, when they compared the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls dating to three and 400 years before the time of Christ with even our modern text, they found that they were almost identical. Without exaggeration, we can say over a 2,500-year period, they were 99.9% identical. And where they differed were such small little things like a letter or a, uh, a non-essential word that to this day there's never been a single teaching of the Bible that has been changed or reinterpreted because of the discovery of those little flaws. So today when we read our Bible, we can be 99% certain that what we're reading was in fact what the original writers put down when they first composed what we call the original autographs. And this is contrary to so many misinformed skeptics who claim that the Bible has been altered and changed and corrupted. What I simply would say to those people is you may disagree with the message of the Bible, but you can't disagree that the message we have is the one that was actually given. And that's really the issue. But many people would like to, because they don't want to have to address what the Bible says, they try to put it off as saying, well, it probably didn't say that. That's somebody else's opinion that was added later on in the future. And yet it was Jesus who repeatedly said, it is written. You see, Jesus quoted the Old Testament over and over and over again. And that's why the early church centered everything that they did on the written word of God as we see up to this point in our study of Acts. I mean, in verse 15 of the very first chapter, Peter stands up and says, the scripture has to be fulfilled. Or in chapter 42 of chapter two, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings of the word. 
In chapter 6, 2, it said, it would may not be right, the apostle said, for us to neglect the ministry of the word. And then we have, of course, in chapter 7, Stephen's historic message where he basically recites in an abbreviated form the entire story of the Old Testament. But it's additionally clear that Jesus and his followers were not, as is suggested, backward, illiterate, uninformed country bumpkins spewing myths, fables, and, and a bunch of malarkey. They were of necessity literate, maybe in as many as four languages, because the text comes to us not only in Hebrew, but it comes to us in Aramaic and in Greek, and it's a possibility that they even learned, at least to some degree, Latin, which was the language of the governing country. Yet for them, reading was a lot harder than it is for you and me today, simply because there were some aspects of literature that didn't exist. I mean, of grammar, there was no punctuation, there were no vowels, there were no numerals. And uh, so that letters served as numbers, we're familiar with Roman numerals, well, basically Roman numerals or Roman letters that had numeric values given to them. The same thing exists in Hebrew, it exists in Greek. Our today, our Arabic number system is, is unique to our modern world. But if you take, for example, a passage like Isaiah 53, 7 that we read here, and the Ethiopian is asking Philip about it, it says in our text, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. But what would that look like if you were to read it in the original language? Well, if I just simply put it into a, a form that would take out all the vowels, all the punctuations, all the separations, you might find that passage a bit difficult to read. And that's why the ability to read was such a highly developed skill. It required that the reader vocalize every sound. Every letter had to be vocalized so that he could hear as he formed the word, the sound of the word, and decide what the word actually was. And that's in large part why we find that when Philip approaches the Ethiopian's chair, or basically it was more like a four-wheeled cart, he could have easily heard him attempting to vocalize the text and then wondering whom or what the text was speaking about. And Philip, being well-educated not only in the text, but in the languages, could easily see the man was struggling to understand he was, what he was reading, and he asked, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, the man replied, unless someone explains it to me? And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Do you know who the first person we have recorded in history who could read without vocalizing the words? It was Augustine, called St. Augustine oftentimes, in the 5th century A.D. Everybody, when they read, they read out loud because that was the only way they could sound out the words. Luke then tells us that the eunuch was reading the passage of Scripture, a passage that was well known to every Jew of that day, but is rarely known today amongst the Jews, which is interesting in and of itself. You see, previous generations of rabbis had agreed that the passage referred to a future coming Messiah. 
Anticipation for his appearing had been running really strong in the hundred years before the time of Christ, as evidenced even by Herod's question of the chief priests and the teachers of the law in Matthew 2, where he asked them where the Christ is to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, quoting Micah 5, 2. So we find that Herod is concerned when they say, we've come to find the king of the Jews. He asked the leading chief priests and the leading experts in the scriptures, where is the Messiah to be born? He said, well, Bethlehem, right here, it's clear that he can be born in Bethlehem. But it was not until Jesus actually came into the world and fulfilled the prophecies that the role of the Messiah would actually become much more clear. Eventually, he would come, as the apostles had queried after his resurrection, to restore the kingdom to Israel. That was the thing that was predominant in mind. When the Messiah comes, we'll be rid of these Romans, we'll be rid of these Greeks, and Israel will become the center of the world, and we were governed over the world. I mean, they would read the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, and they'd see these prophecies of the kingdom of God reigning over the world, and they said, when Messiah comes, he will do all of those things. And that explains why the disciples were so crestfallen when he died on the cross, because for them, if he died on the cross, he could not fulfill what they thought was going to be his mission. You see, it was only afterwards that they began to understand the words that he said to them repeatedly. The Son of Man must suffer many things first and be rejected by the Jews. They never understood that. In fact, we have one point where Peter said, stop talking that way. You know, you, I guess you know, he was part of the positive mental attitude crew who said, you know, you just have to keep on saying, I think I can, I think I can. But don't go around talking about dying because if you die, we followed you for nothing and the whole organization will fall apart because you are the entrepreneurial leader of this group. But the prophets were not foretelling two different messiahs as some rabbis begin to conclude. There must be two because we have this conquering messiah and we have this suffering messiah and there must be two messiahs that are becoming but rather it was talking about one messiah, one messiah who would fulfill two roles. That he would first suffer as the servant of God and then secondly he would return as the conquering king. And it was this passage which is referred to as the servant song that goes from chapter 40 through 55 of Isaiah that the old Ethiopian was in the midst of reading. He may have been encouraged to read it just simply because of its messianic message and its message of universal salvation which would have included him. Yet to this very day, this passage remains as one of the most remarkable, although amongst the Jews, Highly controversial. Because it begins this way. In, in chapter 42, it reads, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Chapter 49, he says again, pay attention, you peoples from afar. In other words, this isn't just for Israel. This isn't just for Judah. This is for people everywhere. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. 
And so we see Christ often portrayed as returning with the two-edged sword coming from his mouth. But it's when we get to chapter 53 that the critics began to have their difficulty because it's so obvious. Now something we, we recognize in our politicized world, that something can be obvious and still be denied. I think the art of politics today is to sound like you're saying something when you're actually saying absolutely nothing. You know, that takes some practice. <laughs> but that's the problem with this passage. It's just so straightforward and in your face. When we read in verse four of chapter 53 that he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him. After all, if you're hung on a cross, that means you're hung on a tree, and the Bible says any man who is hung on a tree is cursed. And even today, the Orthodox Jew will argue, well, Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because he was hung on a tree, and anybody hangs a tree is a curse. Not recognizing, yes, yes, he was cursed, he became a curse for us. He became the recipient of our sins. But he was considered stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced for our transgressions. Transgression literally means sins and rebellion against God. Not just sinning against God, but living in rebellion against God. He was pierced for that rebelliousness in my life. He was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquity refers to our perversities and our depravity. That we don't just do perverse things, but we live within them to the point where we become depraved by those very things. The punishment, he goes on to say, that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's no wonder that the eunuch would ask the question, who is the prophet talking about, himself, or is he talking about someone else? Well, clearly, it's a person. Clearly, it was not Isaiah. Isaiah never died for my sins. <coughs> Nor was it national Israel, as some have suggested. But Isaiah continues by saying, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Any of us who have read the gospel accounts feel like we're reading it again in Isaiah. It is so literal in its fulfillment, so detailed and specific. Even to the point where he says, and he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death so that he did no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. It's interesting, <clears throat> a guilt offering. It's a very specific term in, in Hebrew. is asam. It refers to a specific kind of offering, an offering that required a sacrifice that was a male that was perfect, without spot, or without blemish. It was God's choice to make him that perfect sacrifice. There is no other man who could be this man. 
And after the suffering of his soul, Isaiah goes on to say, my righteous servant will justify many because he will bear their iniquities, or literally in Hebrew, their punishment. He will take the punishment that they are due. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Beginning with that moment on the cross as he looked upon those who nailed him there and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, some have mistakenly stated that Isaiah 53 was excluded from the Jewish Bible. I've heard many Christians say things of that nature, and that's simply not true. You can, in fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls again validate that. You, you find right in the middle of the Dead Sea Scrolls is the 53 chapter, 53rd chapter of Isaiah, just as I read it. They didn't remove it, but they did, in an interesting way, exclude it. You see, in the synagogue every week, they have a weekly reading. It's called their Haftorah readings, selective readings taken from the law and from the prophets. And excluded from those readings is Isaiah 53. And for this reason, most Jews, who, by the way, like most Christians, rarely actually read the Bible themselves, are completely unaware that chapter 53 is in there. And if you have a quasi-Jew friend, you read this passage to them, they'll probably go, I've never heard that before. I can't validate this, but according to a 17th, one writer, he said the 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levy said the change was made during the Middle Ages. It was taken out of the weekly readings because he said reading it, quote, unquote, caused arguments and great confusion. You think? You think that they were asking the same question that the eunuch was asking. Who is he writing about? Is this Isaiah? Well, Isaiah never died for my sins. Yet when we look at it, the, we find that some people, actually the common argument today or a presentation from Judaism is that, well, he's talking about Israel, the nation who suffered for the sins of the world. Really? I thought they suffered for their own sins. That seems to be what the Old Testament tells me over and over again. It is the repeated use of the personal pronouns. He. Him, my chosen one, the body of my mother's, that makes those kind of statements pretty illogical. Today, we might translate it instead of saying he or him, or even being tempted to say her, we'll put just they because that's now the appropriate pronoun. But clearly, Israel never died for anyone's sins but their own. So the simple and most logical and obvious interpretation is the very one that Philip gave 2,000 years ago when he said, Philip began with the very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. For the early church, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy was a, a key part of their witness of Christ. It was a central part of their evidence. We are told or, or suggested that they relied almost exclusively on doing miracles and since miracles don't happen, therefore it's all made up. And what it does is it just moves us right beyond the very textual evidence that basically they base their faith upon, first and foremost, the word of God said. As we talked about in the past, they were warned that if somebody does signs, wonders, and miracles, and they bring a different message, 
to reject them and not listen to them because that's how Satan deceives people. They understood that. Peter, John, James, and the rest, they understood that passage. But when they saw not only the miracles, but they saw the word of God and that Jesus' life paralleled the prophecies, it became not just compelling, but irrefutable. They couldn't refute it. And this is why over 30 times the New Testament writers summarized their account of Jesus' life, his ministry, his miracles, with, as Matthew said some 12 times in his gospel alone, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And this is what makes comments like those of, I'm sad to say, somebody like Andy Stanley, who's a very popular and, and well-known, recognized evangelical pastor and leader. And I find that it's a growing sentiment within the evangelical church today that where when he said that we need to unhitch the gospel from the Old Testament, for those of us who heard it, we thought this is so glaringly unreasonable that I had to go back and dig up the original transcript from the message and listen to it live on YouTube just to ensure that I was hearing exactly what he was saying. And even afterwards, when he was challenged by some great theologians, he refused to back away from the statement. But see, the problem is that without the Old Testament, there is no basis for the gospel. I mean, the Old Testament is cited 845 times in the New Testament, 845 times. It's like my granddaughter was telling me she was doing an assignment and she wanted to cite the Bible and her teacher said, well, the Bible isn't a source material, a primary source. And I said, I don't wanna criticize your teacher because stupidity is not her fault. <laughs> but that's such a terribly misguided, misinformed, and my granddaughter said to me, even in my text, it says the Bible is a primary source. If the Bible is not a primary source, I don't know where you go to find one, unless you want us to go out to the middle of Syria and start digging a hole and seeing if you find something that predates it, which probably would be a hole that you would end up in. But it's a staggering thing to say because it becomes the beginning of undermining the entire foundations upon which the church is built. And sometimes people say, well, why do you get so concerned about this? We should be horribly concerned by those kind of statements that most Christians will just let pass because they don't understand the significance of what's being put forth. When Schleiermacher put forth his premise in 1799, he was just one German theologian in Berlin. But people read it and they believed it. And then you have the whole Tubingen school which have put forth this whole premise which is the foundations of what we call liberal Protestantism today. Followed up years later by men like Wellhausen and a whole score of people that you don't know anything about. But they all had the same premise that the Bible is not a text that you can rely upon. It's not something you can believe in. It's probably been altered and changed and corrected and mythologized and so forth and so on so that really, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun reading if you're a very boring person. But beyond that, it has no significance. 
It's funny how many of us subscribe to very boring things and we don't even realize it because we know they're important to our lives. Going to visit somebody the other day and I plugged their address into my GPS. Now, I would have to say that, you know, my, my map apps on my phone are not my favorite apps. I don't open them up just to see where they'll take me. <laughs> but when I don't know where I'm going, <laughs> they're essential. Now, <clears throat> sometimes they lie to you. Anybody had that experience? <laughs> I spent two hours driving in circles in Hawaii at two o'clock in the morning because it kept on taking me in the same circle. After the third time around, my wife said, we've driven by this already. Where are we at? It's lying. <laughs> the Bible doesn't do that. But you understand that if we are ignorant of what it says, we don't know where we're going. And the things that really matter, we start making decisions and choices based upon our feelings and impressions. And have you ever found yourself relying upon some anecdote comment from somebody and that becomes the basis of your life choices? How many fail-safe investments have been put out there? I guarantee you. I mean, I... In fact, I, I, I don't want to brag about myself, but I was contacted, believe it or not, by a Nigerian prince. <laughs> How he got my name, I don't know. <laughs> Do you ever want to just kind of play along with him for a while? <laughs> just, I just wish I had enough time. <laughs> but it happens all the time with people that believe something because what they're being told is what their greedy little hearts want. So they believe a lie because they want the lie to be true. Even though there's reams of evidence to prove to us that it is a lie. And at the same time, we look at the word of God and we don't really take it seriously enough. We don't read it like our life depends on it because we don't believe that. We've been barraged with a lot of data that tells us, oh, you can't rely upon that. You, you can't live your life based upon what the Bible says which is kind of a state, amazing statement because that's exactly what the Bible tells us it's about. Reading it and basing our life upon it because our life, our very eternity depends upon it. But it affects us both in long and short term ways as well. You see, when people avoid the Old Testament, it can have historically tragic effects. Brent Strawn, in his masterful book, The Old Testament is Dying. Not a light or an easy read, I warn you, but worth it. He chronicles something that should cause us all to pause. He said this, quote, The Nazis were able to enjoy success among the German Christian groups in part because of the widespread biblical and here one should be specific, Old Testament illiteracy. You see, because they didn't, they no longer read, studied, and taught the Old Testament, 
because of the influence of men like Schleiermacher and the Tubingen School of Theology and all the rest, they came to a place where they just simply said, well, why should we even bother? I had a pastor friend of mine who had served in the Lutheran church before he had left that, and he had told me that seminary so destroyed my confidence in the Old Testament, I couldn't even read it anymore. And he said, what a shock it was to realize that so much what they taught me were the facts actually have been disproven and weren't facts at all. They just simply said that the absence of evidence proves that it's not true. But the silence never proves anything. All of this struck me pretty interesting when I was reading a news article. <laughs> I got in this whole trail. <coughs> Excuse me. That somebody had gone into a church in Germany and they had a dedicatory uh, bell there that had been uh, given by the German government to this church. They actually built the church. They built a number of about 36 different churches in 1936 through 1939. And somebody had come in at night and had taken a chisel and knocked off all of the attributions to the donor and then left a note explaining why. And the reason was because what was on it was a swastika. And it went on to say that these bells had been given to these churches, which the German government, the Nazi government, built these churches if the pastors and the leaders of that church would sign a document agreeing to support the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler in particular. A statement of loyalty to Adolf Hitler. Now, why were there people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who ended up imprisoned and executed by the Nazis? Well, the reason was because he studied the Old Testament and he knew that the Jewish people were the apple of God's eye that God was going to build human, his redemptive history around his dealing with the Jews, not only the beginning of God's revelation of himself in the world, but at the very end we find that Jerusalem is ground zero and the Jewish people are the center of what God does in the very end because when the time of the Gentiles were fulfilled, the time in which God centers his efforts upon the Gentile nations, he said would come to an end when Jerusalem was no longer trodden down by Gentiles and that God would begin to close the book on the Gentile nations and begin to finish the work he had begun with the Jewish nation. So that as Paul said to the Romans, so that in the last day all Israel will be saved. But it's this anti-Semitic mindset that comes right out of the pits of hell because the enemy, not that he hates the Jews rather than he hates Christians or worse yet, he just hates anybody who is part of what God wants to do in the world even if they are unwitting victims by genealogy, like the Jews. But if the church, Germans in, in, in Germany had understood that role of Scripture, that place of the Israelites in the plan of God, then anti-Semitism wouldn't have any place to live. But it didn't just start in Nazi Germany. It had started decades before with the passion plays like Ober Amrogau, which portrayed the Jews as always being evil people. And it's an irony, isn't it? That people in devotion to Christ 
would hate an entire race of people as Christ killers. I mean, who someone once said if they had depicted Jesus' crucifixion as it really was, there would be no anti-Semitism because you know how they crucified people? They crucified them naked. That little cloth that he has discreetly covering his loins, that wasn't there. No, you could look at him and go, circumcised. And immediately it would have been known. But even within, it wasn't necessarily just religious propriety or prudence that made them cover up his private parts. Almost said it. But part of it was just simply racism. A hatred of the Jews. I say all this in large part because um, we find much of history happening again and we find it happening here. It was Hosea the prophet who warned, he said, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. They're destroyed by what they don't know. Amos warned, he said, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. It's interesting because the communist world suppressed the Bible and still does in places like China. They don't want people reading the Bible because they find it leads people to have acts of conscience against oppressive governments. And so they try to keep it from reaching the hands of people. Even Bible apps are blocked by the Chinese government. The Russian Soviet communists did it quite effectively. And people risked their lives as they have since the very beginning, to make the Bible available. And yet, we live in a culture where we're ignorant of the Bible, not because we can't get our hands on a Bible, but because we never use our hands to pick it up. Over the years, I've had the honor of sitting with people in their last days, their last hours of life. And it's, it's a, so instructive. Solomon said, you're made wise by going to funerals. I think you're even made wiser when you sit next to somebody who is about to breathe their last, that the next moment they're going to leave their physical earthly body and, and, and be in the presence of God. And when you talk with people like that, when they're still present and basically lucid, and you ask them about what would you have done differently? Now, we all have something to regret. We all do. I mean, None of us, we're all sinners, so we all have something to regret. Everyone is, every time I think about things that happened in the past, I think, could have handled that so much better. I mean, that's just a given, so I don't mean to beat you with that club, because if I beat you with it, then I got to go home and beat myself with it, and I don't like that. But at the same time, I've heard over and over and over again people saying, I just wish I would have lived my life more fully for Christ. I wish I would have been a fully devoted follower of Jesus. 
not some kind of super saint or extra special sauce or something like that, but that I would just have taken his word seriously enough that I would have really sought to let it really sink into my heart and begin to penetrate my life. One good thing about when we pass from this world, the Bible says if you're a Christian, he says then we will see him as he is and we will know all things. No reason to memorize the scripture anymore. (laughs) You're going to be permeated with it. I often look forward to putting off this body of flesh and getting a new body, a body who its greatest lust and passion is to praise God and follow him and worship him. That would be a nice change. That sin would be something that would be unthinkable, not holiness as it is for many people. But you see, we're coming into a time where increasingly the pressure is upon us to neglect the word of God. We are distracted more than anything else. We're distracted. I gotta, honestly, I'm impressed that you're here this morning. It's a 10 o'clock kickoff today. (laughs) And you missed it. That says something right there to me. That's, okay, DVR, I know, I get it. (laughs) But I'm gonna tell you the score before the end of the service, so it'll ruin that for you. (laughs) I called my grandfather the other day, and he was watching a replay of the, San Francisco game and San Francisco and I said uh, uh, I said why are you doing that? He says well I watched it the other day but I can't remember how it ended. (laughs) That'd be an interesting space to live in (laughs) which my wife thinks I already do but but what really comes down to it you need to understand what's really at play here what's really the game that's afoot. If we take the Old Testament seriously, then we have to revise our view on abortion. We have to revise our view on divorce and adultery, homosexuality, certainly transgenderism. All these hot button topics that are out there. And that's why there's such an effort to get rid of the Old Testament, because everything that's said against those things in the New Testament is based upon what? (laughs) The Old Testament. And because the Old Testament condemns those behaviors, um, their advocates want it to be rejected, banished, and we reject it by neglecting it. To me, the real tragedy in our churches today is not what is said, but what is not said. I had a pastor literally tell me one time, he said, well, I just teach on the love of Jesus, so I skip those parts that say other stuff. He says, I teach verse by verse, but when I come to a verse that speaks about sin and death and hell and so forth, I just kind of jump over that and go to the next one that talks about the love of Jesus. But I teach the whole Bible. Now, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But that didn't sound honest. It didn't sound true. And yet, that's the kind of dynamic we see today. 
So when we see a guy on TV who has 27,000 people sitting in the pews and he reaches more people in the world with his message than anybody else, and if you sit down and listen to him in the whole time, it's interesting the technique because he'll stand up doing something that he learned from his dad. He'd hold up his Bible and he recites his little mantra, this is my Bible, it is the word of God, and goes through this whole thing, and then he puts it down and doesn't bother touching it the rest of the message. He doesn't let it interfere with what he's t- saying. And I sit to myself and saying, in the end times, God will send them a strong delusion that they will believe a lie. A strong delusion that they'll believe a lie. I'm I'm gonna make a tragic mistake here. I'm gonna end on time. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear your heart in all of this, Lord, not just your word although I don't know that we can rightly separate the two. But sometimes, Lord, the words just kind of hang out there, disconnected from our daily life. Almost we assume sometimes that you said it, but you don't really mean it anymore because like us, you change your mind frequently. Well, you've told us that you're the same today, yesterday, and forever. You said, I change not. And you said one of the great delusions is that men would think that you were like like them, and you're not like us. You speak the truth, you speak it with absolute certainty, and you tell us to take it as absolute truth. I pray that you'd help us to do that, Lord. I pray that you'd help us not neglect your word. I pray for those who have never really seriously begun to read it, who struggle with doing so, and, and feel like it's just too hard to grasp Give them the, that hunger and thirsting for your word that would be so great that they wouldn't be able to not read it. That they would commit to not a moment, not a month, but a lifetime of reading your word day by day until it becomes written in their hearts And it becomes second nature to follow it. And when we find ourselves not doing it, we are corrected and repentant as we agree with your word and say, it is truth, not us. We ask for your help in this, Father. We ask for this empowering of your Holy Spirit that we would not come to the end of our earthly journey and say, I wish I had taken my faith more seriously made it more central to my life. Forgive us, God, when we just come here on a Sunday or occasionally and give you a nod, but we're not desperate to know you. Do what you need to do to make us desperate, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.